Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Once the body is placed into the coffin, we're asked to speak to them by name and say, We ask your forgiveness if we did not act according to your honor, even though we acted according to our custom. Then the coffin is closed. If there's a Star of David, it's supposed to be put at the foot of the lid. The coffin is not supposed to be reopened. And that, that's it. That's the end. ReSound is a remix of audio documentaries, found sound, sound bites, music, oddities, and sonic gems that we find all over the world. Today, an award-winning world premiere. The first airing of The End as Beginning, an audio exploration of the Jewish view of death by independent producer Rebecca Shear. The work is an investigation, an illustration, and an explanation all in one. And it balances those things so artfully, it won the 2006 Third Coast Festival Director's Choice Award. Stay with us. Then you go to the second phase of the morning called Shloshim, which means third. Shloshim is returning, slowly returning to the normal world, quote-unquote. In that month, you're expected to begin reintegrating into your regular life, uh, return to work, start paying a little more attention to your personal needs. And then you, after that, uh, you're now out of the period of Shloshim. There is no greater unknown than death. Different cultures and religions have different beliefs and customs, but of course, no one really knows what happens after you die. So in a sense, most of the rituals surrounding death, burial or homegoing or jazz funeral or wake, are really for the living, helping them to process death and move on with life. Today on ReSound, independent producer Rebecca Shear examines the Jewish approach to death, from the prescribed mourning process, seven days, covered mirrors, torn clothing, and the ritualistic cleansing and preparation of the body, to the philosophical debate about an afterlife. We begin today's show with the first part of this trilogy. It's called Talking About It, the Jewish Mourning Process. The way I heard it initially was that she was in for a regular annual checkup with her, her doctor, and the doctor said something's wrong. Subsequently, I heard that, that she'd known that for some time that there was a strange uh, hardness in her belly. And they knew immediately that it was cancer. I mean, they, they estimate that the initial cancer appeared in her appendix.
thing about a uh, cancerous appendix is that it's asymptomatic. If the appendix doesn't burst or anything, you can have cancer cells in there for years, and chances are she did. It wasn't until the cancer spread into the large intestine and into the ovaries, and so basically by the time that it was diagnosed, both her gastrointestinal system and her reproductive organs were completely cancer-ridden. With each treatment, each operation, Jerry Sorokin knew the doctors weren't saving his little sister. They were just easing some of the discomfort, maybe adding a few hours to her life, a few days. The more they treated, the more they operated, the more one thing was clear. Susie was not going to survive. She was diagnosed in January of 97. In July of 97, Claire and I went to Israel because we were going to live there for the year. We came back to visit her in December, and it was Hanukkah time. And she was still able to walk around pushing her IV on a rolling cart. It was very important to her to be able to celebrate Hanukkah. But because it's a hospital, you can't light candles in the patients' rooms. There's oxygen flowing, it's a fire hazard. And so she was at Mount Sinai Hospital, which is a Jewish hospital. There was a, you know, an Orthodox rabbi who was uh, a chaplain. So the, this rabbi would light candles in the lobby of the hospital every day. And Susie insisted that she wanted to be there for the candlelight. He was a nice enough guy, but he didn't really get it. The rabbi said, oh no, you know what, because of your condition, if I light the candles, I will be doing it for you, and I, you will have fulfilled the mitzvah. And she says, no, I want to light the candles. And so we went down to the lobby every evening with her and uh, lit the candles. For many, death is more than just a riddle. It's something so disturbing that very often we can't or don't even know how to discuss it. Instead, we tend to shrink away from it conceptually, as if maybe it'll just vanish if we remove it from our thoughts. This isn't the case in the Jewish tradition. In Judaism, death is accepted as a part of life, an unavoidable part of life, one that's acknowledged and extensively talked about. And not only when it actually happens, but at all stages of life. In many synagogue services, the entire congregation recites the Mourner's Kaddish, a prayer commemorating those who've died and comforting those who grieve. And when death actually is imminent, the mitzvah, or holy commandment, of Bikur Cholin, visiting the sick, is considered so great, so essential, that the scriptures actually permit you to violate the rules of the Sabbath, or day of rest, in order to visit your critically ill loved one. Now, it is true, we're never actually prepared to lose a loved one. In the face of death, how easy is it to be overcome by sadness, anger, maybe some fear, maybe even a little guilt? But the thing is, when it comes to death, Judaism gives us something to hold on to. It offers a structure, an ancient series of procedures and stages of mourning, all designed with two purposes in mind. To show respect for the dead, and to comfort the living, those left behind the people who will miss the deceased the most. And the centuries have shown that this gradual process of going through one's grief, these laws and practices handed down by the great rabbis of yore, well, it actually works. It works for people like Jerry Sorokin, who went through the heartbreak of watching his 28-year-old sister Susie grow sicker and sicker with cancer, a rare form of cancer whose next order of business was, inevitably, 
death. Four months later, she had slipped into her coma. She wasn't conscious, she wasn't seeing anything, her eyes weren't open. But she was alive, and so for that last two and a half weeks of her life, my parents and I were there in Toronto. And every day, we were there from eight in the morning, sometimes until midnight, two in the morning, depending when we felt like leaving. We wanted to be there with her, we wanted to be there with each other. It was a way of, of, of trying to gain some mutual support. And eventually, uh, one day, I remember specific, I was sitting in there, my cousin who lives in Toronto came, and she's a nurse. And so she was sitting with me, and suddenly the breathing became rather odd. There, there's a, if you're ever around someone who's dying, a, a natural death. It's, it's a process. It's not something that just happens. They don't just, it just doesn't, people don't just stop. There's a sequence of events that happen, and the breathing becomes, it, it becomes spread out. You hear a breath, and then there's no breath for a while, and then again, and then there's this rumble that happens, which I guess is in the throat and in the lungs, you can hear it happening. And, and, and we were sort of prepared for that, we knew it was going to be coming, but she'd been breathing this, this sort of spread out breathing thing going on for days and days and suddenly it, it, it sounded different and my cousin said I think we may be there oh so I called my parents in and uh, we all sat there and she stopped breathing and that was the end I mean we were literally in the room as she died Even though she had lived in Toronto for most of the last eight or nine years, she wanted to be buried in her hometown rather than in her adopted hometown. I think had she lived longer, then it might have been different. And as it happened, she died on a Thursday evening, which meant that you know traditional Jewish law would have said we'd have the burial Friday. But there was no way that we could get her to Edmonton and get us to Edmonton and get all the other relatives to Edmonton by Friday. Morning doesn't begin until the funeral. So because we couldn't get the funeral done by Friday afternoon, and there are no funerals on Shabbat, we didn't have a funeral until Sunday, which meant that the morning really didn't get underway for three days after, her, after she died. And that was weird. But it was actually very helpful. We had an enormous funeral. I mean, we've got a large family, and everybody came. We had friends from all over the country, all over you know, North America, coming to this funeral. People from the community, people who she knew, people that we knew, friends of mine, friends of my parents. I mean, it was just an enormous outpouring of, of, of support. Morning starts at the time of the funeral. Once the burial happens, then for the next seven days, or until a holiday, or until Shabbat, or something intervenes, the mourners, meaning the immediate family, children, spouse, parents, or siblings, are expected to sit on the floor or on low benches. They're not expected to take care of themselves, depending on how traditional they are. They don't sh shave, they don't bathe, they wear the torn garments. They cover their mirrors to emphasize that there's no egoism here, that this is the time of intense grief. There's a thing called sitting shiva. Rabbi Jeff Portman. So you sit shivy, which is seven days, which is what shiva means. And that means that people will not go to work, they will not go to school, they will not go to the theater, they will just let other people take care of things for themselves. The period of shiva 
is a mourning time. Rabbi Elizabeth Bandick. It's for the, the, the mourner to truly confront the fact that their loved one is gone. Your neighbors are encouraged to make a meal for you because you have to eat. <laughs> and sometimes when we're in mourning and our minds are going every other way, we forget that we have to take care of ourselves. It was important to us all that we had this traditional community-based, family-based, community-based, anything, the concentric circles thing, support network that uh, enabled us to feel more like we weren't being left on our own. Once the week is up, then you go to the second phase of the morning called Shloshim, which means 30, for the rest of the first month after the burial. In that month, you're expected to begin reintegrating into your regular life, uh, return to work, start paying a little more attention to your personal needs. Uh, you're no longer holding the prayer services at home, but you're still considered in a deep level of grief and grieving. Shloshim is returning, slowly returning to the normal world, quote-unquote. From the time of internment until 30 days have passed, you mark it till Shachrit. Shachrit is mourning, like the M-O-R-I-N-G <laughs> service. You say Shachrit service, and then you're, after that, uh, you're now out of the period of Shloshim. And then at the end of Shloshim, there's often, particularly in Israel, you'll see this even among the not necessarily religious communities, a, a ceremony commemorating the one-month anniversary, since the month anniversary of the uh, of, of the person's death, where you take the next step to reintegrate into your life for the rest of the first year. In the year, that first year of mourning, you're not supposed to attend concerts. You're not supposed to sing and dance. You're not supposed to do things that are celebratory, although you are not permitted to skip out on a wedding. You go to the wedding, but you don't stay for the dancing. You're phasing yourself in. The grief is still very much there. You want to pay tribute to the memory of your family member, but you have to go on with your life. And so the religious Jew will be saying Kaddish for the parent, will be saying this prayer, the mourner's Kaddish, three times a day, morning service, afternoon service, evening service, for a full 11 months after the death. Interesting about the Kaddish is it's the oldest prayer in Jewish liturgy. Jewish scholar Alan Perlman. It's so old that it's in Aramaic, it's not in Hebrew, and it espouses the glory of God, and nowhere in the Kaddish does it mention death. And of course, it ends all of our services. In the conservative Orthodox, only the person rises who says the Kaddish. In the Reform branch, we are all mourning for them, for you, so we all rise. People who are more traditional go to the synagogue every day, maybe three times a day, to say the mourner's Kaddish. And they will actually end in 11 months. There's a sort of a, a superstition that the mourner's Kaddish is to make sure the person goes to heaven. And you only say mourner's Kaddish for 12 months if you think the person who died was evil. Wicked. The mourner's Kaddish is actually, in Hebrew, is called Kaddish Yatom. It's the orphan's Kaddish. Because the idea is the orphan, the, the child of the person who died, is supposed to be saying these blessings, praising God, as a way of helping their dead parent to be 
absolved of sins and, and, and admitted to heaven. Well, Susie didn't have any children of her own to do that. And while my father and my mother said Kaddish for her, and it, it seemed appropriate that I do it, that my brother do it, and that her husband do it. Customs and rights did develop from Talmudic times, which is Second Commonwealth era, to present day. And interestingly enough that they do somewhat coincide with our modern understanding of psychology and how we deal with mourning. So I think that the rabbis were kind of on to something, to be honest with you. Judaism understands that grieving is a phased process that goes from intense to strong to continuous to recurring and that's why we have this seven days of, of intense mourning where we pay no attention to our personal needs and we rely on the community to help us 30 days of serious mourning but we start to bring ourselves back into contact with our world a year of important mourning where we we remember through the process of saying Kaddish three times a day of, of making this constant tribute to them but at the same time trying to reintegrate our lives knowing that we can't stop dead because someone else died. People who go through seven days of Shiva and do a Shloshim ceremony after a month, those people tend to have a, a, an easier time reacclimating to society. The people who reject these traditional Jewish approaches and figure that they'll just be fine on their own really have a harder time than the people who take the centuries or millennia of psychological insight and put it to good use. You know, they say Queen Victoria didn't leave her room for 10 years after Prince Albert died. And she continued to wear a black and a veil for the rest of her life, and she outlived him by, what, 40 or 50 years? That's not how we do it. No matter how much the memory and the bitterness and, and the anger and the, the disappointment linger, you can't stop living. And because you can't stop living, and because you can't simply flip a switch that says, okay, now things are fine, we'll, you know, put on a stiff upper lip or whatever and just move forward. That doesn't work either. There has to be a transitional period, but you have to go through the transitional period. You can't string it out forever. Our lives as individuals, our lives as members of a family, our lives as members of a community, contain within them elements of the lives of the people that we care about. And when those people are no longer alive, their impact doesn't suddenly stop. So the last good visit we had with Susie was at Hanukkah. And I, I know, and it's been eight years almost since she died, that every Hanukkah when I light the candles, it brings to me the memory of the last time that we were with her when she was functioning. So it's important to, uh, to continue thinking through how Susie's life is reflected in my current life, in the way I'm trying to relate to my kids, how 
her example should serve as inspiration for other people and how we need to talk about her. Indeed, if dying truly is part of the business of living, as Judaism believes it to be, what else to do but talk about it? We certainly can't deny its existence. As it is written in the oft-cited collection of ethical teachings known as the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, Fear not death, we are destined to die. We share it with all other mortals, with all who ever lived, with all who ever will be. Bewail the dead, hide not your grief, do not restrain your mourning. But remember that continuing sorrow is worse than death. Be consoled when the soul departs. As a drop of water in the sea, as a grain of sand on the shore are a person's few days in eternity. The good things in life last for limited days, but a good name endures forever. In the time of our trouble, seek the consolation of friends. In days of distress and desolation, may they help us to endure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That was part one of independent producer Rebecca Shear's trilogy about the ways in which Judaism handles death, talking about it, the Jewish mourning process. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're devoting the entire show to Shear's series, The End as Beginning, an audio exploration of the Jewish view of death. The second part of this trilogy details the experience of preparing a body for burial. In Jewish tradition, this ritual is very specific and prescribed. The story is called Honoring the Body, Tahara. My name is Lauren Reese, and I'm a 45-year-old resident of Iowa City. I've lived here for about 20 years. My name is Jeff Portman. I'm the rabbi at the synagogue in Iowa City. I go to Sahi, and I've been here 31 years. My name is Jerry Sorok, and I am the executive director of the University of Iowa Hillel Foundation. A few months ago, I was a member of a, a group of individuals from our community here in Iowa City who 
conducted a traditional preparation of the body before burial for someone who died that involved ritual washing of the body and getting it prepared for burial. You know, Jewish tradition says that there's a whole series of steps that you're supposed to take to wash a body. Now it's not to wash it literally to clean it, it's a ritual purification that is aimed at maintaining dignity and uh, helping the people who are preparing the body think about this person with the utmost level of respect. first time I did was actually for my father-in-law several years ago. I'd never been to one in New Jersey, and I was asked to be part of it. I found it very, very moving, because this is something you do for a person, and that person can never, ever repay you. It's a, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment to do without any hope of payment. You just do it because it's the right thing to do. Some of the ancient rituals, some of the old ways of doing things, bring more meaning and bring more satisfaction than the more contemporary approaches that might be more easily understandable because they're done in English and they're done quickly, but don't really have much depth to them. And in Iowa City, in memory, in, in 30 years or so that Rabbi Portman had been here, he could only remember it being done once, and that was for a woman. I didn't know that this ritual existed until about two years ago when I got a phone call, and I guess it was from Jeff Portman, the rabbi here, uh, looking for women who would be interested in helping a family who wanted to perform this ritual on their daughter who had just passed away. There were four or five of us, and you know, when it's a woman, there's a, a different committee. It's a committee of women, of course. We all knew the person who had died. I knew him quite well. One of the others knew him extremely well. Others knew him probably less well. So I, I knew intellectually that this was the right thing to do, but I wasn't sure emotionally how I would respond. I've been around life with spies for a long time because when you do funerals, you, I've seen lots of, unfortunately, dead people in the hospital and outside the hospital, so that didn't bother me. I was nervous because I uh, had never handled a, a dead body before. Uh, most of the other people involved were physicians, and I'm not one, so they were much more accustomed to being with dead bodies than I would be. And this was my first experience of hands on a dead body, but it began with um, about five women. I think two of them were physicians, two of them were people who are kind of in the holistic healing trades, and me, who myself was at the same the same age of this woman who died of cancer, and I I'm living with breast cancer, and so I had my own angle of fascination with it. He, he died the day before. This was first thing the next morning. It was at the funeral home that was uh, assisting us. The funeral itself was going to be at the synagogue here, but in Iowa City there's no Jewish funeral home, so there's a, a, a secular home, a funeral service that helps with Jewish funerals. The funeral director was extremely accommodating and, and very interested in this because he had never seen this tradition either. He's not Jewish, but he watched it and found it fascinating to see how it differed from other ways of preparing a body. We gathered at Lensing Funeral Home. Of the five of us, two of us had read up on it and learned the rituals and had to teach everybody else. That was a comfort, right, to be amongst a group of women. Right, you're not doing this alone. You're not doing this with a man. You're not doing this with people outside your community. It was women who I knew well enough to feel okay. Going what was in. touching to me is that you know this, you have this lifeless body, which if you, if I knew the person, I knew that person was before, and so all those emotions go back to you, and all those experiences you had with that person come to as you're washing their body. 
he was a teacher, he was a leader in the community, and by giving him this respectful ritual washing, uh, I felt like this was the way to pay tribute to this individual's contributions to our community. She was emaciated and her hair was pretty much gone and she had clearly been at the end of, of a devastating illness and, and a lot of treatment. She smelled like death, you know, and I remember looking at her hands and just, their beautiful hands, and just seeing how they weren't ever going to touch anybody again. The whole point of the Tahara is to give honor and respect to the body, uh, to the deceased, the Met. This is about the holiest thing you can do. But at the same time, uh, we know that there's a possibility that we might slip up. And so, at the beginning of the Tahara, the people participating will say together, naming the person who's died, they say, we ask your forgiveness for any distress we may cause you during this Tahara. We will do everything possible to ensure that you are treated with respect and that all the elements of Tahara are properly completed. Everything we are about to do is for the sake of your honor. There was a lot going on in one short amount of time there. It was slow, it was cautious. It was extremely complex in terms of the, the way this woman's body was to be rinsed and the flow of the water had to go from the head downward. During the portion of the tahara in which the body is being washed, it's customary to recite a passage from the Song of Songs. How beautiful you are, my beloved friend. Your eyes are doves from behind your tresses. Your hair as a flock of goats that trail down from Mount Gilad. Your teeth like a flock of sheep that rise from the washing pool that are all matched with no break among them. Like a crimson ribbon, your lips, and your speech is pleasant. Like a pomegranate is the curve of your cheek from behind your tresses. Like a tower of David, your neck, raised in splendor. A thousand shields hang upon it, shields of the warriors. Your two breasts as two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lungs. You are all lovely, my beloved friend, and there is no flaw in you. None of us had ever participated in one of these things before. And so we were, weren't making it up as we went along. We were going very much from a list of directions that had been put together for what you're supposed to do, beginning on the right side, you pour the water from top to bottom, uh, then you do the left side, and you turn the body over, and you do the genitals, and finally you do the head. At the end of that process of uh, pouring three buckets of water over the body, then the members of the team of the group will recite Taharhi, Taharhi, Taharhi. She is pure. She is pure. She is pure. And then when she was fully washed, I remember we had to to put her in the Jewish ceremonial burial garb. Judaism says quite explicitly that we come into the world all the same. We're all, you know, slimy and naked. And it's important that we are supposed to leave this world all the same. And that's why we cover the body in a very simple white garment that's supposed to be the same for anybody, regardless of their level of wealth or their level of prominence in the community. It's like a white tunic and white pants and then a 
sash that you had to tie, I believe it was 13 times around the waist. Just as the tefillin, the straps and boxes that are uh, used for morning prayers, are tied in such a way that the letters making up God's name are actually written on your body as you're praying, uh, they use a special set of knots for tying the sash in order to create the letter Sheen, which is the first letter in the name Shaddai, which is one of the names of God. The other letters, Dalit and Yud in Shaddai, are also there by how the ends of the sash are hanging, so that the three letters can actually be read across the body of the, the Met. And then we put them into a simple casket. We had to put her in actually a cardboard box that was like stapled together that she was going to be shifted. She had advanced cancer and they came here for treatment. They were from Connecticut and so she died here and she wasn't going to be buried here but she needed to be washed here. And then her body was shipped back to Connecticut for burial. It's customary to sprinkle afar, which is just its dust, often from the land of Israel, onto the body, but not entering the body, onto the outside of the uh, eyes, the heart, the genital area. It's about the connection between Adam and Adama. Adam meaning humanity, Adam being Adam, the first person, and Adama, the earth, that's all about bringing that connection to full circle. And on the bottom of the box there was sand that was from Israel, that that's a piece of this thing, that you get buried with Eretz Israel, that the land of Israel goes with you into the grave. In Israel, uh, burials often take place without a coffin at all, because an even more traditional Jewish way of burial is to cover the body in a cloak and put it into the ground. Because the old saying, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we truly believe that. You want the body to deteriorate into the earth and to return to where it came from initially. I remember being a little girl and burying my great aunt Anna and just thinking, that's how I want to go. It just seemed completely right to me to go into a wooden box into the ground and disintegrate over time. Once the body is placed into the coffin, we're asked to uh, to ask forgiveness, uh, speak to them by name and say, We ask your forgiveness if we did not act according to your honor, even though we acted according to our custom. Then the coffin is closed. If there's a Star of David, it's supposed to be put at the foot of the lid. The coffin is not supposed to be reopened. And that, that's it. That's the end. can be an, an emotional process, especially if you're preparing the body of someone you don't know, uh, where what you're doing is providing among the most important aspects of respect for humanity, and doing it to someone you don't know is a great act of charity and of loving kindness. I was the same age as this woman, I had the same disease that this woman had, and so I felt, you know, I needed to keep a certain level of emotional distance. My emotional experience was trying to grapple with that. The few times we've done it, everybody that's participated in it has found to be a very moving experience because here, this person can't do anything for you. It's, it's the last thing that will be done to this person before they go in the ground. You're sort of participating in this person's, well, it depends on what you believe in the hereafter, but for some people who believe there's some, something afterwards, 
you're still helping that person enter into whatever there might be. It was a very powerful thing to do, and I felt quite good about it afterwards. I felt like this was the right way to pay tribute to someone that I had considered a, a teacher and and uh, and a mentor in some ways. Now, for those people who didn't have any experience with a body, it was a little traumatic. And. You know, I think probably as the time went on, I got a little more comfortable with it, and I participated a little bit more, and I think maybe there were a few moments where I was like, I kind of need to get out of this room. But everyone that's done has said that they do it again. I would expect that if the circumstance arose again and I was asked to do it, I would agree. I wasn't squeamish. I wasn't feeling like this was odd. I was actually feeling somehow enlivened by it. But like anything, you know, so first time you do it is the hardest, and then... You get through it, and you're changed, and you go on. I would do it again in a minute. I had a great appreciation for the attentiveness involved, you know. It was a very dignified experience in its own way. And, you know, you'd think, well, you'd never have sort of five women standing around you naked like that in life. It's one of those ironies, you know. No one would tend to you so carefully, really, if you were alive. Judaism really believes that the body is holy, that the body is in some ways ours on loan, that our soul enters the body at birth. We use the body to get us through our lives, and then when the body expires, we live on, and that's the whole concept of, of the afterlife, but yet the body itself is a holy vessel that needs to be treated as such. I'm proud to be part of such a tradition that honors the body. I wish that I think I wish there was a culture that honored the body more in as much in life as it does in death. Death is, is very much part of life, and it can be a very sad part of life. It can be a painful part of life, but it is death. It's very much there. Being in the presence of death just brings you closer to it. And so I liked being close to it. I would like to be close to it more. There's almost a comfort in, like, this isn't that scary. It's like, okay, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what happens to everybody who came before and everybody's good was gonna come. And then as the members of the Tahara group leave, they say together, House, House of, Israel, of Israel, come let us come walk, let us in, walk God's in, light. in God's light. The Rock, the Rock of, of Israel, Israel has spoken and called, and the, called world the world into being. Into being. From, From the, the east where the sun rises to the place where it sets. Peace shall come, and each of us shall rest in our appointed place. For dust we are, and unto dust we return. God has given, and God has taken away. May the name of God be blessed. Honoring the Body, Tahara, produced by Rebecca Shear. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. This is not the kind of audio story you can hear just anywhere. Rebecca produced this series as part of her graduate MFA thesis from the University of Iowa. We thought it was so good, you should hear it. Now, where else can you hear award-winning student coursework in a world premiere? Nowhere. If you appreciate what you hear on ReSound, let us know. All comments and questions can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Yisgadal v'yisgadash shemehirabol 
Now we move on to the last part of Shir's trilogy. It's called What Comes Next? Jews and the Afterlife. Birth is a beginning and death is a destination, and life is a journey. From childhood to maturity and youth to age. From innocence to awareness and ignorance to knowing. From foolishness to discretion and then perhaps to wisdom. From weakness to strength or strength to weakness and often back again. From loneliness to love, from joy to gratitude from pain to compassion, from grief to understanding, from fear to faith, from defeat to defeat to defeat, until, looking backward or ahead, we see that victory lies not at some high place along the way, but in having made the journey, stage by stage, a sacred pilgrimage. Birth is a beginning, and death is a destination, and life is a journey, a sacred pilgrimage, to life everlasting. When I was a little, little girl, my biggest fear wasn't of the dark. It wasn't of tight spaces or whatever it was that might be lurking underneath the bed. It wasn't even a fear of clowns, though they did freak me out a bunch. No, my biggest childhood fear was of something else. Death. But the reason wasn't quite what you'd expect. You see, my fear was based upon the supposition that after you die, you keep on going. An afterlife of sorts, I suppose, minus the life part. Instead, you die, but you just lie there, in the dark, however many feet under the ground, hopelessly and helplessly awake aware of who you are and who you were and how the world above you just keeps on going without you. It's like one of those dreams where something awful happens. Somebody's chasing you or you encounter something horrible and all you want to do is scream or run away. But somehow the dream you is unable to open her mouth or let out any sound or will her legs to move and run the hell out of there. Now picture that for an eternity. That, to me, was death. This past September, shortly after Labor Day, my grandmother died. We called her Grandma B. She wasn't the first grandparent I'd lost. My grandfather, my mom's dad, had his heart go out on him when I was a junior in high school. But this was my first grandmother to go, and quite frankly, I never thought she actually would. I mean, how could she? She was the one who was always slamming tennis balls at the swim club or showing me off to yet another of her five trillion friends when we bumped into them and their personal shoppers at Saks. She was the one who'd whip up vats of lemonade and egg salad and hold court at these massive family parties she hosted. 
the one who would purse her lips and mutter, watch it sheer if I got too sassy, or bust out with a teasing rendition of anything you can do, I can do better if I started getting a bit too big for my britches. And she was the one who, for reasons I have yet to understand, once tried convincing me that my birthday was June 3rd, not January 3rd. And even though I could think back to years and years of midwinter birthday parties and Dairy Queen cakes, my grandma bee was so emphatic about it, so stubbornly self-assured, that for a minute anyway, I, I believed her. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything she and her husband lived in a nice house in the suburbs. Then his Parkinson's got worse, and it was a nice apartment in the suburbs. Then, when she started to crumble under the pressure of attending to his every need 24 hours a day, it was assisted living. The move was meant to buoy her back up, but instead it just slowed her down. She barely left the building, and the few times I came to visit, I noticed that her tennis player stride had been replaced by this old lady's shuffle, her orthopedic shoes barely leaving the ground as she shambled around the cramped apartment. Then she started falling. The first time, she didn't even remember it happening, didn't remember stumbling in the living room and landing face first on the couch. To this day, nobody's sure why she kept losing control like that, Though my father, a pharmacist who'd been taking care of her and her husband's medicinal needs for years, he suspects it was a series of strokes. The last time I saw Grandma B was after one of the very last falls, strokes, what have you. It was Passover, and I'd flown back home to Cleveland for our annual Seder. You know, the matzah and Manischewitz-filled feast commemorating the Jews' exodus from Egypt. Grandma B was actually in a nursing home by then and I went with my dad to pick her up and bring her and her new wheelchair back to our house. He'd warned me that she might look a little bit different from the last time I saw her, but slumped in the front seat of the Passat, I swear, she looked like she'd lost about a hundred pounds and a few good feet of height. One side of her face was frozen in this grimace, and you couldn't help but breathe in that sour nursing home smell as you leaned in to catch the garble of words she kept trying to scrape from her throat. It was mid-April, but a freak snowstorm forced all of our guests to spend the night. And when my sister and cousin, both of whom lived in Cleveland and had grown used to seeing my grandma like this, when they asked me to help put on her overnight diaper, all I could do was stand in the doorway of the bathroom, my arms frozen at my sides, watching them wriggle the flimsy paper pants up her purple stickpin legs and try not to cry. Several months and a handful of falls later, my grandmother moved from the nursing home to the hospital. Several months after that, she was dead. After you die, you keep on going. An afterlife of sorts, I suppose, minus the life. After you die, you keep I could say, several months after that, she was gone. Or, several months after that, she was in a better place. But the thing is, when it comes to death, my tradition, the Jewish tradition, we don't try and skirt the issue. We're told to look death in the eye, acknowledge it as a natural part of life. Goodness knows we don't prettify it. At her funeral, my grandmother wasn't lying there, all gussied up in her best sack suit, smothered in a layer of pancake makeup. Rather, her coffin, her simple, elegant wooden coffin with nothing but a Star of David on the cover, was closed. As one of the pallbearers, I helped carry that coffin to her gravesite, and I helped sprinkle sand from the land of Israel onto its lid. 
After all, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Right? Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. After you die, you Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. After that, the source, I suppose. Minus the light of our We're born, we live, we die. Judaism has taught me that much, but okay, assuming my childhood phobias were wrong and we're not actually stuck there in the dark twiddling our thumbs for eternity, then what do we do after we die? I mean, where do we go? Seeking some sort of answer, I asked a bunch of rabbis and scholars. What happens next? No one really knows. We may get these images of these kings that come back to life and the witch of Endor, but there's really nothing that says, okay, this is what's going to happen. Judaism, there is not a real clear opinion of the afterlife. No question that Judaism thinks that there is an afterlife, that there is heaven. There's even a concept that's uh, analogous to purgatory. Traditional is that once you die, you get a sort of a holding area. If you're good, you'll reside somewhere with God. If you weren't so good, maybe you'll not be with God. In Judaism, we have the soul, we have the spirit, and we have the body. Some Jews believe in reincarnation. That's some Hasidim in reincarnation. Others, the liberal movement's position is, by and large, that there is nothing after death. According to the book of Ecclesiasticus, it says that all souls, all spirits, return to Hashem. Who and then when the Messiah comes, everybody, Jew and Jew, will be, non will be resurrected, and the good people, Jew and non-Jew, will continue on and whatever um, I haven't really finished my thinking, my studying in soul, is there not a soul, what happens to the soul? You get three Jews, you get 50 opinions. Grandma B was my father's mother. Like I said, my mother's father died a little over 12 years ago. But to this day, Mom swears she can still feel his presence, senses that Grandpa High is right there with her, like the proverbial angel on your shoulder. Although most Jews will tell you that our tradition doesn't actually believe in angels. I say most. You get three Jews, you get 50 opinions. My sister Katie and I used to play this game. Okay, so it wasn't a game really. It was more like this crazy little ritual. We'd be in the car, and every time we drove by a cemetery, Jewish or non, we would hold our breath. I'd read in this book about ancient superstitions that graveyards were just swarming with spirits, spirits of the recently departed. And if you didn't hold your breath when you passed by, those spirits would seep into your body, become a part of you, a part of your heart, a part of your brain, a part of your soul. So, Katie and I held our breath. The moment we spied that first tombstone, we'd slurp in a great whoosh of air, hunching our shoulders and puffing out our cheeks until the cemetery was, at last, out of our sight. The tradition says when you come from the funeral, you wash your hands. You're washing yourself to prevent the spirits from contaminating. Because it is said that in a cemetery, you have many spirits wandering around. And you don't want bad spirits, you only the want the good eternal spirit. breathe into man's nostrils the breath of life. That spirit is what is called the soul. The innate part of what we are, the yesh, as Rav Cook called it, which is the essence of our being, is of God, is from Hashem. And so it, it can't die. There is the thinking again in more traditional Judaism that you are dealing with spirits, you are dealing with a soul, and you are dealing with the transmigration of the soul and what happens upon death. Dust you are, and to dust you shall after you die, you heap on. 
very little material on the world to come, or olam haba as it's called in Hebrew, in the Torah. Some say it's because the sacred scrolls were revealed shortly after the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians, who, with their massive tombs full of statues, jewelry, and gold, were positively obsessed with the afterlife. So maybe the Torah was, by way of omission, repudiating those beliefs. But in spite of the Torah's near silence on the subject, Jewish writings and folklore do cover the olam haba a little bit, and for all the seriousness that death involves, some of these texts are actually kind of funny. One tale describes the Olam Haba as a place of learning. Moses is the teacher, and he sits and teaches Torah all day long. For the righteous people, the old story goes, this is heaven. But for the evil people, it goes on to say, this is hell. People are required to atone for their sins in order to make it to heaven, and sometimes there's a period of waiting before they get there. When a person dies, their soul really goes into a place that is between life and death. Uh, in fact, the mourner's Kaddish, the prayer that the survivors, generally it's, it's the uh, children, but also other immediate family members, say in the, the year after the person dies, is aimed at trying to push this dead relative from purgatory into heaven. Mourning lasts 12 months. And so people who are more traditional go to the synagogue every day, maybe three times a day, to say the mourner's Kaddish. And it will actually end 11 months. There's a sort of a, um, a superstition that the mourner's Kaddish is to make sure the person goes to heaven. And you only say mourner's Kaddish for 12 months if you think the person who died was evil or wicked. So none of us think our relatives or parents are that evil. Now, it isn't that my grandmother was evil, far from it, but she could be one tough cookie. For example, my dad was the first of her four sons to get hitched. When he and my mom set their wedding for a Sunday, my social butterfly of a grandmother refused to come unless they changed it to late Saturday night, after the Sabbath, since she'd already made plans with her friends for that Sunday afternoon. So Grandma B and my mother didn't exactly get off to the most swimming of starts. But later on in their relationship, towards the end especially, my grandmother and my mother managed to come to a peace of sorts. As it happened, Mom had gone to visit Grandma on her 83rd birthday. She'd finally taken the ugliest fall of all, the one involving a hot shower, a slippery floor, and a severe blow to the head, and they'd moved her into the hospital. She wasn't entirely with it after that. But the way my mom tells it, she was having an unusually lucid day when her birthday rolled around in July. So the two of them are chatting, and all of a sudden, my grandma B looks at my mother, and she says, clear as the beeps on an EKG, I had a very good life. I had a very good life. I think when she said that, she meant her old life. Not the one filled with orthopedic shoes and paper diapers and hospital food on plastic trays. I'm talking about the life filled with parties and personal shoppers and tennis matches and family and friends. My grandma was a woman who was accustomed to having her way. My grandma was a woman who had always had what she wanted. Now, quite simply, she didn't. So, when her will to live went out and she refused to eat, her feeding tube went in. 
Physically, she did get a little stronger, but emotionally, she just kept falling. So the feeding tube went out, and a month and a half after declaring what a very good life she'd had, my Grandma B, well, she went out too. I know I'll never see my grandmother top spin a tennis ball again. I'll never hear her say, watch it sheer, if I start to step out of bounds. But it's been seven months since she died. And like my mother with her father, part of me believes that in some way, Grandma B's still here. I mean, sure, I have no idea where she actually is. And when it all comes down to it, my religion is pretty ambiguous, if not downright ambivalent, about the whole thing. But seriously, when all is said and done, does it really even matter? If you compare a Jewish funeral to, say, a, a Christian funeral, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to have the belief that there is definitely something there, that you're in a better place. Because if you go to most Christian funerals, you get the minister or whoever's talking and say, well, he's in a better place right now. We live all our life, and now she's with God. That's, that's where we all go. And that's very comforting but isn't Jewish. It's more important as Jews in what you do now on earth to your fellow being than whether you go to a place that's light or a place that's dark. It's more important what we do on earth, what are our mitzvot, our commandments, our rules, charity, loving kindness, than what happens to us in a so-called afterlife. I'm glad that Judaism really looks at death in a way of saying it's a part of this whole life's transition from birth to the Brit Milah, to Bar Mitzvah, to the Kupah, to raising children, and then we expire. And as we expire, the cycle of life continues through our children and through our loved ones and family members. So it's not an end in that sense, as long as the person's memory is alive within family and friends, that that person truly is still alive. I had a very good, after you die, you keep on a very good life ongoing. A very good life. What Comes Next, Jews and the Afterlife, by Rebecca Shear. The entire series that we heard today, The End is Beginning, an audio exploration of the Jewish view of death, was part of Shear's MFA thesis from the University of Iowa nonfiction writing program. From there, she went to Alaska, where she's hosting a show called AK, a news magazine. The second section of her trilogy, Honoring the Body, Tahara, was also the winner of the 2006 Third Coast Festival Director's Choice Award. In the Rabbonon Kaddish, after the words Damiron Beolmo Vimru Omein, you add the following Al Yisrael ve al Rabbonon ve al Talmidei Hoin ve al Kol Talmidei Salmidei Hoin ve al Kol Monde Oskin Beiraiso di ve Asro Hodein ve di ve Chol Asav ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. 
You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.